Welcome to Fine is a Four-Letter Word, the podcast that empowers you to say fuck being fine. Tired of being stuck in a place where you say everything's fine, when it's really not fine at all? You're not alone. I'm your host, Lori Seitz. I've been there too, and so have my guests. Here's a secret. All it takes is a conscious decision to change and then restructure beliefs so your actions take you in the right direction. That's where fine is a four-letter word comes in. Each week, you'll hear inspiring stories from people who have transformed their lives and businesses and practical tips and takeaways to move you from spinning in place to forward action so you can create a life of joy. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. First of all, I'd like to give a shout out to our previous guest, Mike Fister, for connecting me with Grant Muller, who you're about to hear from today. And what a story. Do you know what it's like to passionately want something and not be able to express it? To suppress and bury who you really are and what you really feel just to try to fit in and not become a target? Somewhere along the line, you were given core values like integrity, but without any framework for what integrity means. What is integrity? Does it mean you boldly live your authentic life and use it as a driver to make the world a better place? Or that you figure out how to fit in and do what you're supposed to do for the good of the collective? Society teaches us values, but it doesn't necessarily show us how to live them. Part of the social contract is that you agree it's okay, that it's fine. But as you know, fine is a four-letter word. Coming from South Africa in the 1980s, Grant Muller struggled to fit in after his family immigrated to the United States. So he buried his beautiful native accent and did what everybody else was doing to avoid getting picked on. As a teenager in the 80s, he fell passionately in love with his male best friend. In those days, you didn't readily admit to that. To cope with his feelings, Grant found a new lover, alcohol. This led to more love affairs, first with cigarettes, then eventually cocaine. Outwardly, he was successful, becoming a millionaire by 28 years old. But when he got fired, he figured he'd just retire and party for the rest of his life. Until the check bounced and he found out all the money was gone. Before you know it, Grant was sleeping on people's couches, getting into worse trouble, and soon facing four long, arduous years in a prison. In a moment, when you meet Grant, you'll walk beside him as he tells you more about his rapid decline from the top of the mountain to the depths of the darkest valley. He had to do one of the most courageous things a person can ever fathom. And in painfully struggling to rebuild, Grant found the friend of a lifetime who reached into his world and showed him a new point of view. In short, Grant had to step out of the clusterfuck of fear, regret, and disappointment and into a new, powerful place of peace and contentment. Like Grant, if up until now you've called your life a nightmare, a shit show, or a dumpster fire, you've been living in chaos long enough. It's time to let go of frenzy and lean into calm. You are here in this world, living this life for a reason. In the program, Staying Calm in Chaos, I take you by the hand and guide you through how to go from being an overwhelmed high achiever to a calm, 
grounded, and centered person who has peace of mind no matter what. It comes with some powerful, mind-changing meditations as well. Check it all out at get.stayingcalminchaos.com. It's time. And now, let's head on over and meet Grant Muller. He's right over here in the lounge. Come on. Hello and welcome to Fine is a Four-Letter Word. My guest for this episode is Grant Muller. Grant and I were introduced by a past podcast guest, Mike Fister, and I, of course, do not have his episode number right here handy, but I will put it in the show notes. Grant, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Lori. It's great to be here. Yeah, let's just jump right into it. And let me ask you the, the question that people love when I ask this question, but what were the the beliefs and values that you were raised with that contributed to who you became as a young adult? That's a great question. There were a couple. Uh, so number one was integrity. Integrity has always been a big thing in my family. And um, well, I went on to violate that later in life, but integrity was a huge one. And we'll get to that. Yeah, absolutely. And, <laughs> uh, and then I would say, uh, you know, values around taking care of others, um, you know, um, making sure that uh, we build community. Uh, and, and that's been a value that has stayed with me for a long time as well. Okay, cool. And so... Um... As you were growing up, like, were you involved in in activities that promoted those things? Like, how did you learn that stuff or how was that transferred to you? I think I think it came from watching watching my parents and my grandparents rather than it being explicit. It was implicit. Uh So um, when I was really young, when I was seven, we moved from South Africa to the United States and later we went back to visit and on that visit in south africa we had two weeks of endless barbecues which is how they love to gather um and it was going to family after family after family after family to kind of reconnect with them and and it was like we were on tour it was really insane but it helped me realize and see just how um connected my family had been to that culture and to their community. And so in seeing that and then seeing my parents lean into the community when they need to or give into the community when they could uh, really helped inform that sense of community. But it was implicit rather than explicit. Sure. As usually our learning is. And even the things that are explicit, it's those implicit things that really get buried in the subconscious. Absolutely. Like that's that's how we get wired. That's how our brains are wired and those beliefs that then drive us for the rest of our life we're not even aware. They are just wired in there. That makes so much sense. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So as you got older, how were how did that wiring work for you in terms of what what it led to as you got older? Well, I went in a different direction pretty quickly. Pretty quick. Okay. Yes. So um, although I had that value track in my life, uh, very early on, I learned some other values as well. 
And again, they were implicit rather than explicit. When we moved to the U.S. in second grade, I had a funny accent. I spoke like a South African. and Which is a cool accent, but well, I guess not when you're a kid. Middle school or high school, it's cool. But in second grade, not so much. Okay. And then to make matters worse, I didn't even know what Sesame Street was. Uh, okay. One so. of these was not like the other. You know, <laughs> it was. It definitely was awkward. And so I was ostracized and isolated very quickly when we moved here. And so as we progressed through second grade, I learned how to tone down everything that was different about me and to accentuate everything that was the same, which was really nothing. So really, I just pretended to be like the other boys and girls. And so I learned the value of pretending to be whoever you want me to be mm. so that I'm okay. Wow. And okay. So that value also tracked at the same time. So what that value did is it allowed me to connect to community like I had learned, but in a very, very false manner. Mm. In a very superficial manner. So I wasn't getting okay. the real benefits of community. I was yeah. getting just the superficial benefits. And some benefits, right, but- like things like safety, right? Sure. Right. Safety, because then you were you were accepted and not outcast, exactly. which from an evolutionary standpoint, if you're outcast, you are, you know, food for the lions, right? Exactly. <laughs> so I was I was safe as long as I could hold on to that image. Um, and that later started to, t- to tear down. Did you have any siblings? I had a brother and a sister, older brother who was developmentally disabled, and a sister who's four years younger. Okay. And so they did not experience the same exact, type of... Exactly. So my brother was already different, um, but didn't realize it. My sister was young enough that she was just a cutie with a cute accent at that age. Uh-huh. And, and, uh-huh. and lost it even more quickly than I did. Um, because as we're kids, we're so impressionable, we lose those accents very quickly. My parents still talk with an accent because they were adults when we moved here. Right. So my sister was yeah. in preschool, I guess. And so, you know, she it, she didn't have that same situation. Right. Because preschoolers aren't as um, as cruel as elementary school kids. Yeah. <clears throat> they, they don't know any better. They Everybody loves everybody it's, in preschool. Exactly. What a great place. <laughs> yes. Could we all go back and live there? Right? With nap times. Yes. Nap times for sure. And snacks. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So then... Tell me more about what happened uh, when you, because you started running with a, the, like, if you want to label things right and wrong, but a crowd that wasn't necessarily um, uh, for your best interest. So as we moved into middle school, uh, my friends, a few friends I had managed to hold on to, uh, those friends started getting really interested in sports and really interested in girls. And I wasn't interested in either one. And uh, I was actually hiding from a pretty shameful secret or what felt shameful at the time. And that was that I had a crush on my best friend. And oh. uh, this was a time in the late 80s when uh, there was lots, lots of people in the media. And unfortunately, again, now saying that we are an abomination if we have uh. sex, uh, love or attraction. And so it was, um, so I hid that secret, not just from my best friend and my other friends, but I hid it from myself. 
And I learned how to squash those feelings and deny those feelings, just like I pretended to be someone I wasn't before. It continued on again for my perception of survival. Um, I held I held that secret even from myself. And right about that time, I discovered alcohol. And mm. from that very first drink, everything for the first time in my life felt like it was okay. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I was okay. And so it was yeah. an immediate, immediate love affair. How old were you? I was in middle school. And, okay. uh, you know, so. So like 12, 13, 14. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was probably 13. Uh, so. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, I learned to drink, but I also learned very quickly uh, that my friend would drink, get a little buzz or get drunk and then stop. I would drink even at that age, until I was blacking out. Um, so wow. it was something different. I noticed that he stopped drinking at some point, and I couldn't. I didn't. Once I started, I there was no stopping until my uh -huh. body physically shut me down. And so, so it wasn't the wrong crowd necessarily. He was just a friend who was experimenting like some friends experiment. Unfortunately, right. I had a part of me... Um, that was addiction that I believe I was born with um, and that I yeah. believe was then nurtured by that trauma of pretending to be someone it wasn't. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. Is there alcoholism in your family? There's not. None that I know. Okay. Of. Yeah. No addiction that I know of in my family. And that is a, a big risk factor, but it wasn't a risk factor that I know of that contributed to um, this. Now, my mom was adopted. So you never know what's on the other side of the family. Mm -hmm. But often what I've learned is, although there's supposedly, quote unquote, a gene, it tends to be more of a nurture thing. So it tends to be more about the behaviors that get um, inherited, yeah. not the not the actual gene or something. So it's interesting. Yeah, I want to hear more about your story because you have a really, uh, I don't know if dramatic is the right word, but you have a really interesting story, especially the this, the comeback part of it, uh, which I want to get into. And then the other I idea or concept I'd like to touch on is coming back to the community that addiction is a, is a, what's the word I'm looking for? Like it's a, it's not caused by, but it's an issue with 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 a, a, a feeling of lack of community or lack of belonging. Yes, yes. And on top of that, um, when we uh, when I was an addict, um, as an addict, my addiction wants to separate me, and um, so I learned very quickly that as I was drinking with my friend, he didn't drink the same as me. So I had to find new friends who did drink the same as me. Mm -hmm. And then I worked through those friends. And, and then it was ultimately me drinking alone. Um, I remember drinking. Um, I, had night, I had first period a driver's ed um, in freshman year of high school. And I remember drinking before first period in the morning. Oh, my God. By myself. And then going to driver's ed. And driving with students in the car on the mountains, um, drunk. Um, so, uh, so it was, but it was a very isolated, very separated thing, because my friends wouldn't didn't want to drink with me anymore. 
Um, another uh-huh. example, I remember going to a, and this is in, I've written about this, uh, going to a party once and finishing an entire bottle of Southern Comfort in the car with my friend. And the door, you know, you open the door and I literally just roll into the gutter very literally and pass out and don't go into the party. And I believe it was my way of hiding from going to the party. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it was my way to excuse myself from the party. Um, but you know, it, it was bad. Um, it was not, it was not fun high school drinking. Not that yeah, I condone fun high school drinking. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I'm pretty sure that most of my listeners have been like, yeah. that's part of our high school memories. Exactly. Yeah. Because it's, it seems like if for a lot of people, it's kind of one of those rites of passage and for a lot of people, it doesn't turn into an addiction. Yeah. It's something you do when you're in yeah. you know, high school and college and you have a bunch of crazy stories and that's it. Yeah. And then there are people like you who it's that's not the story. And then somehow, as you can imagine, that person in high school, somehow I managed to mostly shield it from authority figures and get away with it. I was very smart about how I did it and mostly shielded it. There were a couple of times I was, I was caught. Um, but then it was very much, Oh, I'm so sorry. And it was a big mistake. And what a silly little teen thing I did. Yeah. So it was always very, you know, li- you know, meanwhile, I'm selling, um, Kodak camera or, um, what do you call them? Film canisters of vodka to support my habit. Oh my to my, my, you know, so, um, so I have a whole enterprise going. So you were an I'm, entrepreneur at a young age. Very young, yeah, yeah, unfortunately. And so I take the big bottle and make it into smaller bottles, and I'd pay someone that lived that lived on the sidewalk outside the liquor store to go in and buy liquor for me. Um, it was a whole thing, but um, but but I was pretending to be fine, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it, to to bring it back to the theme of your podcast, um, I did a very good job of that. So your parents didn't know. So they didn't know the extent of things. So I would get caught once in a while. Um, I took up smoking cigarettes because um, they hated that, but it covered the smell of alcohol. Right. That was a little bit and more so, socially acceptable, maybe. So I was very devious. Uh-huh. Um, wow. Very devious like that. And most addicts are. Um, we're very good at hiding from the truth from ourselves and from others. And... Um, that's that's really what addiction is 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 hiding from who we really are yeah. hiding from our values violating our own values etc um so somehow i made it through high school a very average student but i made it through high school and a few um you know parts of my story along the way but ultimately what happened is i found work and money as a new addiction and um you know workaholism has much more fun um, side effects than alcoholism. Right. So, so I would work 14, 16 hours a day, um, and I was kind of a dry drunk. I stopped drinking, um, and I just applied all of that to working and um, ended up at an Internet startup where um, this is in the late 90s. And we went public. We all got rich. Ferraris and Porsches started showing up in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting, though, uh, in my condo overlooking downtown Denver and thinking the day after we went public, I was a millionaire. I was not even I was in my mid-20s. And I thought, is this it? Mm. Like, is this 
you know, it didn't make me feel better about who I was. Yeah. And it wasn't helping me hide from who I was like alcohol was. And I started drinking again. And um, yeah, the story goes from there, depending on, on how far you want to go. But yeah, yeah. well, I want to get to the part that you told me in our pre-show conversation about, um, yeah, the, the downfall and then where you ended up living. Because you're living in this beautiful condo overlooking Denver. Yeah. And, and then you're living in a place with no windows. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Well, I'll take you there in a couple of minutes. Uh, so, so shortly after I started drinking again and we went public, um, it was the year 2000. I'm in a hotel room with a friend in San Francisco. We're about to go celebrate New Year's Eve. He put, we're pre-gaming, drinking mm-hmm. in the room. He puts a line of cocaine on the um, coffee table. Yeah. I've never done drugs before, but I think, what the heck? I'm a little drunk. And I was in love immediately. Oh, um, upon the return, um, I started buying my own Coke. I was using daily within the week. Within the week. Wow. It was just, it was like alcohol. It just answered all my questions. And what cocaine does is it allows you to drink longer because it brings you up. And so that mechanism yes. in your body that shuts you down from drinking too much doesn't turn on. So you can drink and drink and drink and drink and drink without passing out. So it was just always more Coke, more alcohol, more Coke, more alcohol. Wow. And within six months, I was fired from that job. But no big deal. I'm 28 years old. I'm a millionaire. I'm going to call it retirement. So I retired early and I just kept partying. And at this time I was spending about $30,000 a month on cocaine and traveling and quote unquote friends that were around. When you party like that, you have a lot of friends. Sure. And one day one of my checks bounced and all it meant was I just needed to call and um, exercise more shares because when you party like that, you're not balancing your checkbook. No, right. No time for that. No time for that. And so I called to exercise more shares and they said, sorry, you have you, you have no shares. We don't see shares in this account. I said, you've got to be wrong. There are about 16,000 shares there. And they said, no, no, you had 90 days to exercise your shares after leaving the company. You failed to do that. So you forfeited your shares. <gasps> what? And so I lost everything in a moment, about $1.2 million um, in that instant. Oh, my God. And if you had just exercised those shares within the 90 days, you would have had that money? Yeah. Yes. Now, um, the universe is a funny thing. Yes. Uh, because if I had exercised those shares, um, they did plummet um, like six months later and have never returned. So whether that money would have ever been mine or not, it was, it was all paper money. Uh, anyway, and, and by the way, I also believe, by the way, I also believe if I had exercised those shares and had that and sold the stock and had the cash, I would not be alive. I was just going to say that exact thing. That's where I thought you were going when you said the universe, uh, you know, how the universe works. That's what I was going to, that's where I was I thinking. Would not be alive. Mm-hmm. I used to do um, lines of cocaine, and I'm not trying to glorify this, but, um, you know, this big. And I used to think, I hope this one kills me. Wow. Please let this one kill me. And often I would do it and drop to my knees. You know, it would be. Um, and so so I can only imagine. And and the thing with having that much money, and this is what you see in celebrity culture, is you can pretend that you are fine. Mm. Oh, family, my bills are paid. Leave me alone. Yeah. Right? I got this. Yeah. Neighbors, sorry about the noisy party. Here's $1,000. Leave me alone. You know, you could do these things that you could just kind of solve these problems that come up. Mm-hmm. Um, I drove, 
I had a really, really high-level DUI attorney. Um, I got a DUI, and um, he, and I'm surprised I only got one, and I'm so grateful I never hurt anyone. I'm not proud of this. But um, on the way to court with him, he called me and said, oh, do you mind picking me up? And I thought, oh, gosh, because I was so drunk. Mm. On your way so to court drunk. for a DUI, okay, you're drunk. In case I was going to go to jail, I thought I might as well ease it. Oh, jeez. But I got my DUI attorney drunk. And because of privilege and money and disgusting things, I got away with it. You know, so so there was that really negative side effect of money mm-hmm. and access. So I'm really glad that I lost that money. Um, and so I hung up the phone and I looked around the room and said, you guys, something has to change here. You know, it's not okay to continue like this. Clearly, we need to sell the BMW so we can buy more Coke. Oh, jeez. Oh we sold God. the cars, sold the cars, bought more stuff. The cars were gone within, um, you know, a day. The Coke was gone within a week. And the friends were gone after that. Mm. And within a few months, I was um, I had I had foreclosed on and I had to move out of the place and started couch surfing. And it wasn't long after that that I was on the streets. And, you know, once in a while, we'd find a place to stay at a drug dealer's house or whatever and um, became a full time drug dealer because like you can't work um, and, but, and 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 switch to, you know, even deadlier stuff with like meth, et cetera. Mm. And. Um, sold it because you can't work. You can't go to a job when you've been up for seven days. Yeah. You're just crazy looking. Right, right. And you just don't they have They start the to suspect something. Yeah. And so that was the only job I could have. And that's the job I did. Um, and it got worse and worse and uglier and darker from there. I've only told you the, the nice friendly parts. Mm. Um, it got worse. And um, so then in 2008, um, I, I, long story, of course, but I don't want to. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so 2008. So this is eight years of living yeah. this way and yes. you're still alive. Yes, luckily. Barely. I don't know. I, I um, it's I can look back now and see all of the moments um, where I shouldn't be alive. Um, I've been held up by gunpoint um, from rival gang people and drug people. Mm-hmm. So many times I've been kidnapped numerous times. Is this stuff um, all in your book? Because we're going to get to talking about your book. You have this book yeah, that you wrote. Yeah, and it's all in there. I definitely detail some of those stories. Um, the 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 really, you know, honestly, it's the PG-13 stuff in my book. And it's great, um, you know, to read. It's fun reading or whatever. And it seems dramatic. But it's not It's not the real dark stuff. Mm. Um, there is stuff that I can't talk about or um, that just isn't safe for me to put in print but um but yes but yes i i take you to a pretty dark place in the book um because uh i want anybody who's struggling with addiction and almost as importantly um their family members Mm -hmm. to to understand maybe a little bit about why it's not the same thing as mom's mountain dew addiction yeah why why there is it's not it's there's something different and I want them to understand why can't my person stop? And I hope that they read the book and understand that just a little bit. I have someone in mind who needs to read this book. Yeah, and I'm good. sure everybody listening mm. has someone in mind, but I know exactly who I'm buying this book for, for one thing. Oh, I'm, I'm glad. And I hope it, I hope it serves them. And uh, that's where, that's where my heart is in the book. But in 2008, yeah. 
um, for this, uh, I raised my hand and I said, mom, I called my mom who I had blocked from my life for her protection. And I said, please come and get me. I'm done. She came and got me. Um, it didn't work out that time. Long story, uh, which is in the book. But then the second time, a few months later, I said, come and get me. She came and got me. I was, I had a four year prison sentence that had been suspended and given probation, but I was in violation of my probation. And the day before I turned myself into probation, they had taken away that suspension and I was supposed to go to prison for four years. My sister had been advocating for me and had a bed waiting at a rehab clinic. And I got to go to rehab instead of prison. Mm. And the reason I got to go to rehab instead of prison has nothing to do with me. It has to do with the fact that I had a sister who had the means to advocate for me all day. Yeah. I had a family to say, yes, we will take him in yeah. and make sure he gets to rehab. Yeah. I had privilege like crazy. Yeah. Like I'm getting, like people are watching this, they're listening to it, but I'm getting tears because I can feel the emotion and the, um, just the, you are here for a reason, yeah. obviously. And it's just, I yeah, I it's very, I and I <laughs> love seeing crazy I love emotional see for me here. Well, I love seeing you tears. Uh -huh. And, uh, but I, but the message is here that, uh, I, I want people to see the privilege of my story. Yeah. That it's not yeah. lost on you that you had amazing yeah, I, opportunity that a lot of people do not have access to. Yeah. And I have friends who didn't have that same access and who are dead or who are in prison or still on the streets today. Yeah. And so um, now after that, uh, I applied myself and I was willing to do whatever it takes to get and stay clean and sober. Yeah. And I'm very proud of myself for applying myself. But I have had and we're going back to the community values now. Yeah. I had a community. Right. I have what I believe is a higher power. My higher power is love. Yeah. I had a community in rehab and I had a community in 12-step programs after that. And I've built a community of friends and business associates and people I love all over the world um, that help me stay clean today, that help me show up today. Um, so it's, you know, I can't, we can is what we say in recovery. Yeah. And part of Top of Heart is about going from me to we. Uh, so now... Uh, I get to make a ton of money again, just like before. I love money. It's yeah, a beautiful thing. Absolutely. Nothing it's an energy. But it's just like those drugs and alcohol. It will take who we are and it will amplify it. Yes. So before in my life, it amplified a greedy, selfish, troubled human being. And now I'm hoping it amplifies someone who wants to serve and who wants to be loved and share love and help lift others up. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so beautiful. That, yeah, I mean, that's like the hero's journey that every Hollywood movie is about, right? And and all the books and, you know, they teach you in, in marketing about talking about the yeah. hero's journey. When you're helping somebody, you take them from where they are, you know, and it's the whole story and, arc. And, and then look at, um, you know, Donald Miller's story brand. Right. If you know that book, yes. right? One of my favorites. Well, um. I have, it wasn't a guide. It wasn't a Yoda. It was many guides. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, my 12-step my sponsor is 
probably as close to my guide. Mm-hmm. But there have been so many mentors along the way. Yeah. And so I think um, if we're open to, um, if we're open to help, yeah, and we're open to staying humble, those mentors will appear. Was it when you were in recovery that you found the courage, if that's the right word, to be who you are? Great question. So um, I was in recovery, going to the meetings, and, you know, we share in those meetings about what's going on with us. And I was sharing things like what a big deal I was. Hmm how much I was selling. Oh, man, I was moving a lot of weight on the streets. I had crews allegedly stealing cars for me. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I was this deal. I was running with the big dogs. And it was full of what we call junkie pride. Uh. So proud of how bad I was. And, you know, I've, I've always been driven to be significant in some way. And so I wanted to be significant. I wanted to be the worst guy on the streets. And I wanted to be the biggest deal in recovery but i wasn't getting anywhere Uh and um my sponsor pulled me aside at one point and said yo you're not gonna make it if you don't get real here and i kept going the way i was but then one day um i realized i had a night where i almost used and i went into the meeting the next day and i shared how i really felt and what was really going on with me and i was blubbering tears and instead of people being disgusted or turned off, they were all nodding their heads like, yeah, yeah, we get it. Yeah. You're in the right place, yeah. man. Fine. Thanks like, for finally showing seat. up, right? Yeah, you've earned your seat. Thanks for showing up. And so I learned for the first time in my life to get real. And it was necessary. The only reason I got real is I had to to save my life. Yeah. There was no choice. And when you did that, you were accepted more than ever before. Is that what you, it sounds like that's what, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like that's what happened. Absolutely. I found a community where I belonged and most important, I finally, like for the first time in my life at 28, I belonged with myself. Mm. And so that belonging uh, saved my life and they loved me until I could love myself. Yeah. That's, that's a fantastic phrase or, um thing to happen like i i had a mentor one time who said something similar in terms of uh believing in me but until i could believe in myself and that was in terms yeah. of my business but i think it's it valuable. applies everywhere yes that... and we need that in business we need that in business too yeah uh so so i love that yeah it was beautiful now real quick so i've taken you all the way there how important that was in my life during the day, I'm working at the front desk of a real estate office. I always wanted to be a realtor. Finally got my license, and I'm getting real finally in these meetings, yeah. right? Then the next day, I show up at a sales meeting, and they teach us how to make a phone call based on a script. And we're supposed to pretend like we're interested in the person and follow it as formula. And then at the end, we're supposed to say, oh, by the way, who do you know that needs to buy a house in the next three to six months? Uh-huh. So they were teaching me that to make it in real estate, I have to stop being who I really am and fake it. And I I wanted to throw up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was, first of all, I was unemployable. So this had to work. Yeah. No one would hire me at that point. And so um, I had to make it. And I thought, do I have to pretend to be someone I'm not to make it in this business? And long story short, to cut to the chase, 
Um, what I found out is instead of doing that, I went the real way and showed up as I really am and improved who I really am. Mm -hmm. And my business absolutely exploded beyond all of those people who were trying to teach that fake jump. Yeah. There, there's a lesson there for any entrepreneur, it, not just in real estate, but right. Showing up as who you are is what attracts people to you. It's incredible. It's the yeah. opposite of, you know, so many people like who you were thinking yeah. that I have to be somebody else so that people will like me. Yes. And it's when you are truly who you are. And, and everybody talks about authenticity and being real, and but they don't get what it really means. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, the I call it the big A word because it's just everywhere. Mm -hmm. But um, I had to get real to save my life. So, yeah. and that took a lot of work. And in the book, we talk about a top of heart is mindset, skill set, heart set. And the big part of the mindset is around getting real, being who you really are, and being okay with that and showing up that way. Mm -hmm. Um, but here's the thing. If you're just real, but you're not happy with who you really are, mm -hmm. or you're not moving at a level you're proud of, then it's not going to be enough in business. Yeah. So skill set is around creating that excellence, right? right. And I've seen you, the way you run through your processes, just being engaged with you, I can see you understand that. And then heart set is all around, okay, great. I'm great. I do great stuff. I know who I am. I'm being real. But now how does it go from me to we? Mm -hmm. And when we bring the we in and we have simpatico in our business and we run from a heart-centered way, then yes, you're right. That just that rocket ship takes off. It's so fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. When it's about really being of service to others and the money comes because of that, but it's not, I'm just going to pursue the money. Yeah. Yeah. And and by the way, I mean, again, right? I love prosperity. Um, I believe that uh, we can do beautiful things with money. Yes. But if it's the only thing we're after, if which is just like the score, right? Mm -hmm. If if the basketball player only cares about the score, they'll never get better. They'll never be a champion. Right. Champions have a different heart. Yeah. And and I love that you just mentioned about loving money because money is energy. And there are when you have the more money you have, the more people you can help. Yes. And Absolutely. a lot of people don't see it that way. Yeah. Because, again, they've been trained since birth to have the belief that money is evil or if you have money or you got it in some illicit way or it's not a good mm -hmm. thing or whatever negative beliefs people have around money. The truth is money is energy. It doesn't have it's not good or bad. It's whatever you assign to it. And you can yes. do a ton of great things when you have money. Absolutely. Yeah. Not absolutely. just for yourself, but for the world. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to go back one quickly to because earlier in the in this episode, I mentioned that you went from living in the the condo with the amazing oh, view yeah. in Denver to a place that didn't have any windows. <laughs> Um, yeah. So just quickly, where were you living that didn't have any windows when you started working, ironically, in real estate? <laughs> So I was living in a storage unit. Um, I had like a janitor. So it wasn't like, you know, the tiniest. It was a, a bigger storage unit. It was unit. a luxury storage unit. <laughs> it had a shower. And by shower, I mean a mop, like janitorial sink, <laughs> you know? So I'd have to take a bath with cold water and this hose with one hand and just kind of, you know, oh my splash myself. And uh, it's kind of funny. I was wearing a, all Goodwill clothes to the office um, this is in Boulder. 
But this dude who was my size had given all this fancy like clothing, like with French cuffs and cufflinks to Goodwill. So I was dressing like a million dollars, which didn't fit in in Boulder. I was super dressy, um, but it's what I had to wear. Uh And so, uh, yeah, you know, it's funny because when we we think about those times of struggle, I look back at that time and I was so desperate to get to where I am now. But I look back now and realize, oh, gosh, those were the good days. I loved it. It was so cool, you know, driving in my really, really, really crappy car from the storage unit to the front desk job for $9 an hour listening to Anthony Robbins. Uh-huh. On, on the, you know, I, what a great time. Right? Yes. Yes. And so you just mentioned Anthony Robbins. What else, what other tools or techniques or things did you use to help re- rewire your brain so a lot of reading um i am a huge fan my favorite book in the world is the go-giver by bob bird yes. and john david Mann. oh my gosh bob is such a cool guy i know him bob personally and he's awesome cool. yeah it's amazing he's become a huge mentor and friend of mine he actually wrote the forward for my book um so um if you're in sales you need to read the go-giver sales yes. more um, because that's that's my favorite in the series. Mine is so highlighted that the highlighter didn't make sense because everything's highlighted. <laughs> so good. Um, so that's been a big one. Um, and, you know, people like Brendan Burchard, uh-huh. um, anybody who has a positive influence. I'm not a huge guru follower, if you will. Um, for me, what's really worked better than anything else has been to find coaches who have what I want. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that is joy, peace, love, money, yeah. fitness, and hire them. So at any given time, I have four or five coaches I'm working with. And um, I'm a huge believer in that. That's why I ended up becoming a high-performance coach um, with under um, Brenda Burchard's High Performance Institute. Yeah. Um, and I should say very specifically, I do not work for him. It's a cert- certification he offers. Right. Um but what I realized is we can have the right hearts and be who we really are. But if we don't have the habits to show up as we need to, then it doesn't make any difference. So that's why the high performance coaching. I love it. That is, I'm familiar with it. And yes, of course. it's a great, yeah. great program. So yeah. yeah. All right. Wow. You have taken us on this like wild ride. Isn't there a book, like a kid's book, something, somebody's wild ride? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I don't have any kids. So I'm trying to <laughs> think. I know I've heard of it. Uh, yeah. Some, yeah. Some, like like Uncle like Uncle Tim's Wild Ride. That's not it. But it's something <laughs> like that. Anyway, um, <laughs> our friend Grant's Wild Ride. We'll just call yeah, it that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you should have called your book that. Instead, you call, you what go. is it? Like Wait, it? So what is your book called? It's called Top of Heart? Top of Heart. Yeah. And it's about going from top of mind to top of heart. So top of mind is great. No like trust is important, but we need to go further. We don't go far enough. And top of mind is simply about creating real, genuine, human, emotional connections with our clients and everyone we meet. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So before I ask you where people can find your book and find you if they want to continue the conversation, I got to ask you, because you have a great, fantastic, amazing, positive energy. What is the song that you listen to when you need even more energy? What's your hype song? Stevie Nicks, Edge of Seventeen. Ooh, that's a good one. No one's mentioned that one before. I am a um, very obsessed Stevie Nicks fan. 
Uh, I mean, I won't even go into how obsessed I am. How many concerts and, have uh, you been to? Well, anything that comes, anything <laughs> I'm going to see her in December in Palm Springs. Okay. In uh, always the best seats. Uh, she is, she's unbelievable. And, um, you know, another great comeback story. Um, she had, she had some incredible darkness in her life. Anyway, Edge of 17 just gets me going every time when those guitars come in the very beginning. Um, Wadi Wachtel, her longtime guitarist starts going dun 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 dun. Oh, it's just gets me going every single time. I love it. I'll put, (laughs) I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then now, how can people reach out to you if they want to continue a conversation with you? So it's easy to find me at grantmuller.com, G-R-A-N-T-M-U-L-L-E-R.com. Um, you can learn about my coaching there. Um, the book is there. Um, all things all things Grant are right there. Awesome. I will yep. put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for joining me. I feel so honored to have made this connection with you. Oh, and I love that I've made this connection with you. And if you think about it, what's so so interesting is I just mentioned what a big influence Bob Berg has been in my life. I met Mike through Bob, and now I've met you um, through that connection. So it's just incredible when you have these top apart relationships, yeah. uh, how they build from there. I'm so grateful to have have know, you know known this opportunity with you. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me today on Fine is a Four-Letter Word. Holy shit. I hadn't read Grant's book before we did this interview. Starting with the first chapter, he takes you on the wildest freaking ride you can imagine. It is truly a miracle he's still alive and now thriving. Here are the key takeaways. Number one, when you own stock in your employer and you get fired, make sure you know how long you have to exercise your options before they expire and you lose all the money. Number two, One of the hardest things you can do is ask for help from the people who tried to help you before, but you rejected their help. Do it anyway. Number three, when you're on top of the world, you have a lot of friends. But when you hit rock bottom, you find out you had friends all along that you never even noticed. Number four, recovering from addiction is a 12-step program, but you don't take the steps in order and reach the top according to a timetable. Expect to fall down and have to start from the bottom several times before you make it. Grant said one of the reasons he wrote this book is to help anybody who's struggling with addiction and almost as importantly, their family members to understand how it is. Number five, being top of mind is important, but you need to go further and become top of heart. That's about creating real, genuine, human, emotional connections with your clients, your friends, your family, and everyone you meet. Number six, you can have the right heart and be who you really are. But if you don't also have the habits to show up as you need to, then it doesn't make any difference. Thanks for listening to Fine is a Four-Letter Word. If you've enjoyed the show, please follow and share it with a friend. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform to help others discover it too. You can find links to my socials on my website, zenrabbit.com. And before you go, take a moment to reflect on what you're grateful for today. Remember, you have the power to create a life you love, and I'm proud of you. Thanks for joining me. Take care.